0: To everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Bambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And did you know that to listen to the full interview and all of our material, all you need to spend is less than what you pay for a movie ticket per month. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and find out all the subscriptions that we offer. The knowledge will be priceless. And the other radio program that offers priceless information is Sunitas Radio. Just go to SanitasRadio.com and take a listen. You won't be disappointed. It's your life. Take control. Did a highly advanced civilization exist in prehistory? Is the Giza Pyramid a remnant of their technology? Then what was the power source that fueled such a civilization? Tonight's Special Guest, a renowned master craftsman and engineer, claims that the Great Pyramid of Giza was actually a large acoustical device. By its size and dimensions, this crystal edifice created a harmonic resonance with the Earth and converted Earth's vibrational energies to microwave radiation. We will discuss how the pyramid's numerous chambers and passageways were positioned with the deliberate precision to maximize its acoustical qualities. This may be the same technology discovered by Nikola Tesla and the solution to our own clean energy needs. Tonight's special guest is Christopher Dunn, an engineer with over 35 years of experience. He was recruited by an American aerospace company in 1969. He began as a skilled machinist and toolmaker and has worked at almost every level of high-tech manufacturing from building to operating high-powered industrial lasers, including the position of project engineer and laser operations manager at Danville Metal Stamping, a Midwest aerospace manufacturer. Dunn's Pyramid Odyssey began in 1977 when he read Peter Tompkins' book, Secrets of the Great Pyramid. His immediate reaction to the Giza Pyramid's schematics was that this edifice was a gigantic machine, Discovering the purpose of this machine involved a process of reverse engineering that has taken over 24 years of research. In the process, he has published over a dozen magazine articles and has also appeared on several national TV programs. Chris is also the author of the best-selling books on the pyramids called The Giza Power Plant and Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. Chris's website is Gisapower.com, which is linked at ours. And directly from Danville, Illinois, I'm delighted to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Christopher Dunn. Hello, Chris, and welcome. How are you?
1: Hi, Mel. I'm fine, thank you. How are you?
0: It's my pleasure. I'm doing very well, and I'm so glad that finally, after so many years, we have you... On Because every so often we get this these emails from people. Are you ever, ever going to discuss the Giza power plant? So we finally have you here. But first, I'm very curious. It took you many, many years, 11 years, I think it was, for you to finish your first book, the Giza power plant. Give us your background story as to how this happened, the aha moment, moment the light bulb turning on.
1: Yes, uh, it was actually in 1977. And... Uh I was reading Peter Tompkins' book, and uh, it seemed to me that there was a a lot of questions about the uh, origins and the the purpose of the Great Pyramid. And what uh, Tompkins' book offered was the opinion of various people uh, back in that day uh, and throughout history who had uh, posited that the Great Pyramid, the uh, true purpose of the Great Pyramid had not yet been explained, and uh, there were many theories out there, including, you know, that it was some kind of astronomical alignment device, uh, that it was a geodetic marker, or it was a, uh, a temple. And uh, the uh, common theme seemed to be that that the tomb theory was unsatisfactory, and uh and that there wasn't enough evidence to really support that theory. Well, this was very new to me because I'd always, uh, I was taught to believe as everybody is when they're, when they're young, it was that the Great Pyramid was Khufu's tomb. And so, uh, when we have these alternate opinions and people who are actually, you know, exercising their own, uh, Expertise or intelligence, and uh, beginning to re-examine that question, they tend to always come up with uh, an alternate view. Well, um, it was during the time I was reading when the light bulb went off in my over my head, and it was a—it uh, was actually I—I I was looking at the schematic of the Great Pyramid. And it is, uh, it didn't resemble any kind of building, whether it would be for people who visited and stayed a while, then left, or uh, whether it was uh, even a tomb. Because of the the um, unusual shafts and the unusual passageways, the, some of them seemed very cramped, you know, there was uh, like the descending passage to a bedrock chamber, uh, an ascending passage to uh, the grand gallery and a horizontal passage from where the where the ascending passage meets the grand gallery, uh, and then the the conventional theory about how why these passageways exist uh, doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, it, it's always a uh, it relies on the capriciousness of the of the king at that time, who uh, originally the Subterranean chamber was destined for it to be his his uh, tomb, but then he changed his mind and so they constructed the uh, horizontal passage and queen's chamber then he changed his mind again and they went further up into the great pyramid and built the so-called king's chamber and then all the features uh, associated with these uh, were not given that much attention or uh, they weren't explained very satisfactorily. For instance, the, uh, above the so-called King's Chamber, which is actually, uh, constructed out of granite and not limestone like the rest of the pyramid. But the above the, the King's Chamber, there are these, uh, series of beams, granite beams weighing up to 70 tons. There's about 43 of them in all. And these, uh, granite beams, uh, were theorized to allow The, uh, the king to have a flat ceiling on his chamber and not a, uh, not a gabled ceiling like you find uh, down below in the, in the queen's chamber. Uh, but the five layers that, uh, of granite beams, you could actually achieve a flat ceiling without having to put superimposed five different layers of, of granite beams to accomplish that. And it, it was clear that the only thing that uh, is supporting the mass of the pyramid above are the gable blocks at the top that uh, span the entire uh, chamber and that the layers of granite beams are holding up nothing more than their own weight. Uh, and so I, it seemed to me at that time that there was something significant there that uh, needed needed uh, answers to also the unusual shafts that, uh, that penetrated the pyramid from the king's chamber to the outside um they had to have a purpose and uh, what was their purpose why did they why was the chamber made out of granite and then a very very interesting uh feature that was uh, noted by Sir William Flinders Petrie in the late 1800s was that the uh, chamber, the King's Chamber itself, had expanded over an inch. Well, as I absorbed uh, all this information, um, it, it occurred to me that there, were, there seemed to have been some energy involved. Well, Obviously, there was some energy involved in pushing the walls out of the King's Chamber. What was what was that energy? And uh, I I know before I entered into my research that there had been ideas posited that the um, the the Great Pyramid was a uh, receiving station for energies, and my mindset was that these these energies came from the outside. But um, it, it was as I looked at the entire structure and started to examine the evidence, it occurred to me, and that was my aha moment, that the energy was not coming from the outside, it was actually coming from the earth, and it was affecting changes, uh, it was being transduced into in the king's chamber, and going out, rather than energy coming in. And it was that idea that... Uh, back in 1997, that propelled me forward to um, to do further research and gather as much information as I could. And it was, you know, the path, it was, uh, I, I don't think there was a day or an hour after that that went by that I wasn't thinking about the Great Pyramid and uh, reading about the Great Pyramid and uh, trying to refine my idea or looking for clues and trying to find answers, uh, you know, consulting with different experts in different fields. Uh, But along the way, the um, other information came to me, and it wasn't until 1986 that uh, I finally was able to visit uh, Egypt and visit the Great Pyramid. And in 1986, the, uh, another part of my research uh, kind of opened up, and that was related more to the, uh, the question, how did they craft their, their blocks? And I knew from the uh, literature that they had built a lot of precision into the Great Pyramid because of the, the, the levelness of the, uh, the, the base is within seven-eighths of an inch. And then uh, you have these uh, passageways, like the descending passage, which is within the thickness of a thumbnail of being absolutely straight, over 150 feet. These are remarkable tolerances. Uh, the casing stones, um, cut within ten thousandths of an inch, and then brought together uh, with just a very, very thin line uh, between them, uh, and then... That was uh, reading the the conventional literature. The uh, what I was able to do was uh, take those measurements further with modern instruments, because most of those most most of those uh, measurements were taken by uh, William Flinders Petrie and uh, some er other earlier explorers. But um, I didn't realize uh, in nineteen eighty six what i would be faced with uh not just within the great pyramid uh but outside the great pyramid and what appeared to me to be uh unbelievably precise uh flat uh, pr- uh accurate surfaces um and but i didn't have any tools with me at the time i was i was there more to confirm what I had read in in the literature and to try to understand the great pyramid in person in terms of connecting with it uh, and to to see if my ideas or you know the theory that I was developing if I was on the right track and it was it was it was a very nervous time for me before i went actually went inside the great pyramid because the thoughts going through my mind were, "Well, what if I'm wrong? You know what if something's not quite what it was how it was described and it, it kind of destroys or dispels the the whole notion that I have in my mind about the great pyramid being a a source of energy and uh and so I kind of i didn't even go up to the the Giza plateau for about three days after I arrived. now, if I go, I'm there. The next day but then it was uh it was like i was just kind of circling it going everywhere but the great pyramid but you you could always see it in the background uh and then i finally went up one morning and it was an amazing amazing experience i would recommend anybody if they can go uh, to visit Egypt and uh, to go inside the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've had a lot of people on your show who have actually had that experience or go to Egypt quite frequently.
0: Absolutely. And yeah. one thing that I hear, and by the way, I think there's something rubbing with your microphone. I'm not sure if you have it too close to your mouth. or There's some paper around, but just an FYI. I get okay. a lot of people who tell me that, who say you can see it in pictures, but it makes no justice. You have to go there and see the, the how incredibly large it is, so you can realize how advanced these people, whoever made this. But first of all, let me just say that I'd like to organize the interview in such a way so that first, we can first establish your perspective of solid engineering and expertise to refute conventional viewpoints, and then we'll get into the Uh, the more speculative power plant hypothesis. But you say from the book, quote, the Great Pyramid is the largest, most precisely built, most accurately aligned building ever constructed in the world. To my mind, it represents the state of the art of the civilization that built it, unquote. Mm -hmm. So Chris, if by modern standards, the Great Pyramid is considered very advanced, but we cannot replicate it even with today's technology, Mm-hmm. What do you think happened with the civilization and its technology?
1: Well, my personal belief is that uh, the the Great Pyramid is a lot older than uh, than what conventional scholars uh, say it is. Uh, it's generally described to be about forty five hundred years old, built in the fourth dynasty for King Khufu, and. Uh, but i i i think uh and i agree with another writer who uh is passed now but uh, the uh, i think the uh, the pyramids were adopted by the egyptians coming into that area mm-hmm. and uh and so uh, my belief is that if we look further back into history uh and for an event that would be a cataclysmic event kind of like an extinction event, and uh, we go before that. That 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 will be the period where the pyramid was built and utilized uh, during the time before that event. So um, Alan Alford, in his book, uh, The Phoenix Solution, uh, speculated that the, the, the pyramids were adopted because you have the Great Pyramid which uh, was Khufu's pyramid, and then Khafre's pyramid, who was Khufu's son. And it's it, it, for him, it seemed like the reverse, where instead of uh, instead of the you know the um, the Great Pyramid being the last one to be built, or instead of the, the the Great Pyramid having the more superior uh, fit and finish and, com- and complexity. Um, then the pyramids that followed it not being quite as uh polished, not being qu- quite as precise, but uh, but uh, ad- adopted by his sons, uh, and, and grandsons. So, the, what you have is a, a procession where the uh, king takes the, the biggest pyramid, and then you know, the uh, the, fa- the rest of the family have what's left, but um. That's generally, you know, what, uh, my theory. But I think that, that if you go to Egypt and you go to the different sites, <clears throat> you'll see plenty of evidence of where there's been massive upheaval in terms of, um, the destruction of the sites, the destruction of the monuments, uh, a thousand ton statues, uh, are toppled and broken. Uh, if you go south, uh, uh, to Luxor and, and uh, Dendera and, you know, other places, Abydos, you'll see where there are, uh, there is evidence of massive, uh, disturbance, even an attempt to, um, to kind of alleviate some of the destruction. So it's my belief that they knew that there was an, a, an event coming that would be destructive and they prepared for it because you, there are obelisks that had uh, walls built around them and it's speculated that they were filled with with sand. And that would be uh, a, a good thing to do if you wanted to protect the obelisk or stop it from falling. And then, of course, they have obelisks that, that have been uh, thrown and, and thrown to the ground and, and broken. So there's a lot of destruction. Um, at these sites, uh, and particularly, you know, everywhere, at any site that you go to, you'll find evidence of destruction.
0: You mean cataclysmic destruction, perhaps?
1: That's how it appears. That the, these these blocks, uh, the block, there are blocks in at uh, Abu Ghraib that appear to have been thrown up in the air and just crashed down and split, and, you know, cracked in two, sitting on uh, odd angles and uh where where you know natural settlement or even a, you know a common earth earthquake um may, wouldn't unless it was a, a an unbelievably powerful earthquake uh and i think that's what we're looking at because if there there was a comet strike or something like that um uh, then you would have a you know a lot of ground or earth movement that uh could cause those that destruction, and there is, you know, there are, there are books out there that describe an events uh, almost ten thousand years ago. I think Robert Shaka has mm-hmm. written a book about about it. Uh, he uh, has a galactic wave or something that destroyed galactic superwave, right? And uh, so there are events <clears throat> that we can point to now, whereas. You know, when I started to write my book, the uh, I I pretty much kept with the conventional dates, and it was my it was my uh, kind of policy that I was I was just uh, trying to reconstruct from an engineering viewpoint the uh, the structure itself and analyze the blocks and and then provide an opinion on. How the blocks were cut, uh, and a theory on how, how the pyramid functions, not getting so much into the history, uh, of the pyramid or how the civilization ended, what, what happened. But, uh, but then since then, uh, you know, I'm hearing other opinions and, uh, it, it seems that there, there is a, you know, there's a strong, uh, a, uh, a strong school of thought that uh, actually settles on the, the cataclysm theory, that there was something that happened in the past to, uh, to cause the destruction of, of that civilization. And what we're looking at now is just the skeleton. And, you know, if you're really looking at just the skeleton of a civilization, can you imagine uh, what, what, it, what it looked mm-hmm. like when it was flourishing?
0: that was a question Amazing. that i had for you later if you as the with the eye of a, an engineer a craftsman as you are just trying to imagine how the great pyramid would have looked like when it was at its prime can you imagine how that would be can you verbalize that
1: yes i mean what you had was a uh, a, a highly polished building uh, that shaped like a pyramid and there would have been uh, some support uh, building buildings providing support around it. there are some uh, features that are missing now uh, that uh, would have been evident at that time and uh, there is a and then of course we look at what the uh, what kind of Land it was sitting on right now, it's in the desert, uh, and you have nothing but sand around it. But then, you know, we go further back. If we follow the, uh, the timeline further back, um, we can see that there was verdant, very fertile land with, uh, you know, precipitation, uh, and, and we see perhaps evidence of uh, massive precipitation at the uh, on the Giza plateau in some areas where there is evidence of erosion by water and water flow um so we have these these bits of evidence that uh, of course uh, most of it is disputed by conventional uh, Egyptologists but uh the uh, the weathering around the Sphinx seems to be fairly solid in terms of, it's very difficult to explain that any other way but to say that it was done through water erosion. I think Robert Sharp does a very good job of that. And so, you know, then you say, well, when was the last time there was water erosion? And uh, the last time was over 10,000 years ago. Then that's when we have to fix... The, the the period of time when when that enclosure was crafted and the Sphinx was crafted and I believe that the whole the whole site was crafted at that time.
0: But if what Robert Bouval says is true, and we can pinpoint to the Orion constellation, then I'm just wondering if something hit the planet and it, and it moved it, then wouldn't that move the direction in which the pyramids are pointing. In other words, it wouldn't be pointing
1: to Orion, per se. Yes. Um, I know though, all those questions seem to have relevance. And, uh, and of course, you know, our position relative to uh, any position on the planet relative to Orion uh, changes as the Earth rotates. Exactly. And so, and so it's a very difficult one to pin down. To be able to you know to pick a particular star group and say this is why it was built when it just passes by or you know if it's if you have a line from the southern shaft sweeping the heavens or the uh, and then you have you you know one time during the day it's all night it's uh, fixed on Orion. Um, I'm not an astronomer and. Uh, and I and I think that you know there are millions of stars in the sky, Um, you know it, it, it seems to me though that there is there is a connection with the Egyptians and Orion. They seem to find uh, a correlation, or they have it in their symbology that Orion was significant to the uh, to the ancient Egyptians.
0: Well, even in today's well, state, we have the Hoover Dam. In my conversation with Graham Hancock, he told me that they built it around or pointing at a certain constellation in the event that something were to happen in the future, they would know when Hoover Dam was built. But just to, also, I wanted to say, with this theory of another civilization, perhaps not the Egyptians, is this why conventional Egyptologists like, say, Sahih Hawass, they get upset when uh-huh. alternative stories or, or theories are presented, such as Egyptians adopting it uh, a pre-dynastic Monument. And even you, I think you went to, to uh, some place in Egypt where you presented your, some of your research and your business card to somebody, and they basically shoved it into a, a drawer not to be seen again, right?
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. I, it was uh, actually an article that uh, I had published in uh, 1984 in uh, Analog Science Fiction Science Fact magazine. And it's called Advanced Machining in ancient egypt, and uh, I went to the uh, museum and uh I sought out the curator of the museum and gave him a copy of the ar- of the article, which he you know just opened a drawer, threw it in, shook my hand, said, "Have a nice day," <laughs> sent me on my way and uh so yeah that and that's that pretty much symbolizes uh what you know, the response that I've had in the past. Now, I must say that in the future I'm hoping that things will be a little different and uh, I, I'm happy to say that the uh, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt has found an Arabic publisher and so it's going to be published in Arabic in Cairo and there are a lot of supporters for both my books in, in Egypt and, uh, and I, I've always thought that if the history of Egypt is to be changed. Uh, then it has to be. It has to grow within. You know, it has to be an organic uh, evolution. Bottom, yeah, yeah, within within Egypt. You can't have. Um, I mean, people. others
0: changing from the outside.
1: Well, yes, yeah, so which is essentially what has happened in the past, because the uh, <clears throat> the French, the Germans, and the English. Have uh, have gone into Egypt and then they've gone back to their home countries and uh, written the history of Egypt and then presented it to them and said, "Here, here's your history." And they're still doing that. And so, you know, it's like uh, when Petrie went to went to Egypt. He, I think, of all the uh, early Egyptologists, was the the least uh chauvinistic in terms of uh looking at the, the artifacts with the view of everything that i'm seeing here must be primitive because of the uh, the people who lived there and uh, and so they looked down on i mean they were they had this colonial mindset and and looked down on the on the uh the cultures that they had uh, conquered, if you will, or they had control of, and this was common uh, back in back in that day, and it, it it was it is revealed in their writings too, <clears throat> where a lot of early writers they there uh, there is a kind of a racist undertone in how they talked about and how they discussed uh, the people of, of Egypt, so but uh Petrie was a uh he was a a surveyor he was a technical person and his father was an engineer and um and he he tried to change the mindset of his uh of his peers uh he was funded by the royal societies and so you know he had to be very careful but he pointed out uh artifacts that could not have been created by the methods that we we know primitive people used to craft stone, such as, you know, using bone or wood and sand or copper and sand uh, and abrading something, just scratching it out and removing material that way. And he uh, described artifacts in his book, uh, Pyramids and Temples of Giza, that described uh, uh, artifacts cut on lathes and uh, actually visiting his museum in London the, the Petrie Museum and, and, idea, uh, examining those artifacts, um, uh, having worked in manufacturing, uh, for about 52 years, uh, you sit up and take notice when you see these tool marks in the hard stone that are precise, uh, they have, uh, clearly defined geometry. And then there are, you know, they are, they show a proficiency and an accuracy that uh, you can't achieve by hand. I mean, they are definitely created on a machine. And so, obviously, though, the machines are not uh, are not available for us. I mean, they're, uh, they've disappeared, eroded over time, or taken away. Uh, or these artifacts were created uh, in a different area of the earth that may not may or may not now be uh be around i mean you know we know that there are sunken civilizations and uh the huge disturbances uh that uh, wiped out whole civilizations the the myth of atlantis may not be such a myth i mean it could be a reality um in terms of the uh, the advanced nature of its people and uh and its destruction uh, so you know, there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to consider, and uh, that actually supports the view of a highly advanced civilization in the past, uh, and it's just you know getting uh, getting the Egyptians, I think, uh, to recognize, and I think they do, I, I, and but even there, you there is a. Uh, there are barriers. There are cultural, religious barriers to being too open with that information. And even now, you have in the Middle East, you have uh, ISIS the uh, blowing up temples. You know the um, the, the Al Mair, the temple at Al in Syria was uh, blown up just the other day, and um, and because they think these that these. Uh, these temples and monuments are, are, are uh, heretic. I mean, they're they are not they're not uh, don't, don't don't conform with their religion, so they're kind of pagan, uh, which is a you know, it's a bad thing to be for well some uh, some Islamists. Some call ISIS
0: uh, a secret intelligence service, but that's a different story. But does this have yeah. to do with? patrimonial pride or ego in other words as you say the british the french the germans come to investigate and go back home deliberate on their findings and rewrite the history and possibly say there's absolutely no way that the egyptians built built these monuments so they adopted them i can see how ego gets in the way
1: Uh, yes uh, but they did not say that the uh, Egyptians adopted them. They placed the construction of the pyramids in the, at the time of Khufu, and the tools to create them were the tools that are uh, found in the archaeological record, or only the tools that were uh, conceivably uh, available to Ru- the Rudimentary
0: ancient. tools, would Rudimentary
1: be? tools, copper, th- copper chisels, copper tools, copper saws... Um, Quartz, sand, hammers, uh, pounders, stone pounders. All of these uh, primitive tools uh, are credited with creating some of the most uh, incredible artifacts and uh, and buildings that you've ever laid eyes on. I mean, it's not just the pyramids themselves, but if you look at uh, the geometries and the perfection of a Ramses statue, uh, I mean, those are those are amazing statues. The symmetry, the geometry, Fibonacci the
0: Fibonacci sequence present.
1: Well, it seems that there are, there is a a sacred geometry that uh, is mm-hmm. evident. Whether it is uh, it flows from a, a system of measurements that they had, but we don't know about. But uh, it seems that you know in nature. Uh, just as we look at at the the uh, the harmonics of nature where where you have the uh, the human body uh the development of flowers the uh you know the like it's like the fibonacci spiral is is multiplied over and over and over again throughout uh, throughout you know throughout nature the universe and and, and the universe yes yeah, so if we if we uh wanted to wanted the, to build a a society based on harmony then we would have to build it with the earth in mind with the human body in mind and also with the universe itself so uh, the 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 harmonics of this you know the harmony of the spheres they call it or the music of the spheres where each each um uh, Each member, each star, each planet has a particular vibratory uh, frequency. And uh, these are in harmony with each other. Um, And then, so to build a structure that uh, mirrors that, mirrors those harmonies, such as the Great Pyramid, where you find the frequencies of the universe and of the planet Built within the king's chamber, built within the pyramid itself, the uh, F sharp, the C sharp, uh, A, uh, on the, on our musical scale are all frequencies that we find, uh, outside. And then, of course, the fundamental frequency of the earth, uh, and, uh, and how it influences just on a, a natural, a natural cycle how it influences the human body, and how the human body, when it immerses itself in the king's chamber, can become influenced because of the, free, the infrasonic frequencies in the king's chamber.
0: I'm, I'm so glad that you're discussing the acoustics parts and the sound, because I'm, I'm trying to connect dots in my mind. You may have seen these videos where sound vibration hits sand, mm-hmm. and when they change the frequency, say, to A432 hertz, all of a sudden, geometrical figures appear. Do you think they may have used that to visualize what their perhaps their city would have looked like?
1: Well, that's a, uh, an interesting speculation, and I uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, and it does seem very interesting. I know that uh, John Reed is an acoustic engineer. He did a study in the Great Pyramid, and... Uh, on cymatics, and that's where you lay down a membrane and, uh, affect vibration on sand that's, that's, right. uh, on the, on the membrane. And the, uh, and then the sand organizes itself under particular frequencies, such as 432, 438, 440. And the, uh, what was noted was that there were some shapes. Uh, that actually resembled the hieroglyphs. You now, some of the symbols are, that you find carved into temple walls, but it's a uh, the the frequencies and harmonics of the Great Pyramid have been noted for a long time, uh, and the uh, ha- you know the acoustic properties of the Great Pyramid have been noted for a long time. It's just you know why did they. Why do they build those uh, attributes into the Great Pyramid? And the uh, what I propose in the Giza Power Plant is that they were they were actually responding to the energy coming from the Earth. The the uh, they were actually relieving the stresses of the Earth by driving it into harmony, and uh, and this was accomplished by. Uh, driving the pyramid to frequency. Uh, like a tuning say, fork, maybe? Right, exactly. But it, uh, there is a gentleman in uh, Bellingham, Washington, who has demonstrated that the descending passage, if you add a few components and you allow water to pass through the, the uh, subterranean chamber, uh it will vibrate or it will pulse and uh it has a heartbeat. I went out to witness his uh pulse generator and um I, I was amazed because he he had it built on he lives on a hillside in bellingham Washington and he had his uh he had it set up on the hill he had a catch pond um at an elevation, and then a, a downpipe which uh, represented the descending passage, and then the it, it had a model of the of the subterranean chamber, and then it flowed down to a waste gate which had a flapper valve on it. But the uh, but when he started the started it up and that water flowed down, it was it was thumping. I mean, the the, the whole ground was thumping but it wasn't a, a you know just a uh, equal interval thump it was it went lub dub lub dub lub dub and i measured the uh, frequency and it was about 60 beats per minute uh, which is quite remarkable and uh and so we have represented the, the technology within the, Pyra- the great pyramid has been demonstrated to be associated with uh, a, a human heart, and the pulse of the uh, the great pyramid can then uh, resonate uh, up into the great pyramid, but also into the earth itself. And because it, you know, it it would be affecting the the uh, the plate, the tectonic plate that it's sitting on. It could possibly uh, attenuate any kind of stresses that are built up in a subduction zone, or where that eventually might uh, release its energy after a buildup of stresses, and and that result in an earthquake. So the um, that's a piece of the information. That's a piece of the technology of the Great Pyramid that I didn't have. Uh, When I wrote the book, I did, I did describe in the book that the uh, subterranean chamber held the, uh, held the devices to drive the pyramid uh, to resonance. I wasn't even thinking of hydraulics there at the time, but uh, it was, uh, I was delighted to see that uh, John Cadman had, had actually demonstrated that with water.
0: What do you think, Chris? is the reason that so many people believe that the Great Pyramid was built by super beings who came to Earth from another planet, Uh, it was built through divine inspiration, or was placed on Earth completely intact by the hand of God. Why can't people accept that perhaps a more advanced civilization existed thousands of years ago?
1: Well, um, yeah, I I actually, I, I, I think that for myself, uh, uh, as I look in at our society and as I look at uh, ancient societies like in Egypt, um, I do believe in dis- divine inspiration. And I, I do think that we, t- today, advance our technology through inspiration. Uh, the person who uh, actually comes up with the breakthrough may not... Uh, may you not know, credit it to a, uh, you know, a divine power or, but um, it certainly seems to me that people uh, in the past and today who make uh, breakthroughs in science, physics, are accessing um, a, well, you might consider to be, for us anyway, something supernatural or it's not common. And, uh, and how they access it is a different way. But, uh, but yeah, I think you have to really open your mind and open, open your, your heart to th- those kind of energies that will give you inspiration. Because, I mean, let's face it. Uh, I don't, my personal philosophy is, is that nothing, uh, comes from you. I, I think most things come through you, uh, whether it is the reorganization of technologies based on ideas of other people uh, or technologies that other people have, have, have uh, demonstrated, um, and then exploring different uses for them, or, you know, something um, related to the pattern. Uh, and nature of the universe, um, which where you get into theoretical physics and you know the work of Albert Einstein. Um, but I, I I mean, I have a friend who's a physicist, and he relies on intuition and believes that uh, most physicists have to use their intuition if they want to make. A significant breakthrough in the area in the work that they're, they're they're studying.
0: Otherwise, we become stagnant.
1: Well, yes, I mean, and also we become, uh, uh, you know, we we become arrogant, and uh, once you once you th- believe, once you start to believe that everything uh, everything uh, in the universe. Uh, an understanding of it is contained within you uh and the only way the, you have to rely on yourself uh to uh, to the exclusion of any anything else whether it's a something that is a uh, in the physical or the non physical world I, I think then you, you know you may as may as well turn uh, hang it up because you're finished uh from you know until you start to recognize that now as far as the ancient alien question i have appeared on ancient aliens i i i am not uh necessarily a a a complete believer in it i don't dispel it uh i don't you know uh i'm not a ancient alien theorist uh as i may have been described on that television program but uh the uh, intervention in terms of uh, a different culture coming into a country and and helping or bringing new ideas and uh, teaching and training the the local people how to do things that happens uh, every day and it all has happened you know in our civilization for hundreds of years where there's been a cross-pollination of ideas and you know, the export and import of technologies from different countries. So, um, it's human nature.
0: Isn't this the problem with academia? You have exceptions of members uh, of academia who step outside the box, like Professor Robert Schock. Uh, but the question is, where does the inspiration come from? Uh, a dream, Akashic Record, etc. You know, thought precedes action or matter. I mean, I think, this is just my opinion, I'm not a scientist, but I think we have repeated the cycle again and again, and I think the cycle will be repeated again, when spirituality and uh, science separate, and one says that one's better than the other, then we create wars, we wipe ourselves out, what would happen in the future after a cataclysmic event that we create, that maybe the few survivors in the future may dig a little bit, maybe... You know, a few inches under the soil and find plastics. And oh. they would call us, oh, that was the civilization of plastics. Well, they may oh. find an iPhone or they may find an iPad, but that doesn't mean that aliens created that.
1: No, it doesn't. And uh, I, I think all of us have to be uh, a little more uh, strict as far as the type of evidence that we accept of uh, the kind of theories that we accept in terms of what evidence exists to support it but um it's it seems to me that i I think that the the scientific method of course and the cartesian view is uh is a three dimensional uh, surety in that uh if somebody can demonstrate if somebody says that well i got this Through uh, you know, I was talking to uh, spirit, and this is how, this is what I got. If they can demonstrate the uh, the the inspiration and prove uh, in in three in our three dimensional world, uh, what is relevant to our three dimensional world, such as new technologies, new ideas. Uh, I mean, philosophy is a different thing. I mean, we we entertain many many different types of philosophy without having to uh, prove the efficacy of any of them. And, you know, some of them have controlled masses of uh, people for thousands of years, uh, sometimes to their benefit, but a lot of times, you know, not to their benefit. Uh, But when it comes to science and uh, engineering, it's a, uh, we have to follow the, you know, the the uh, theory of the maxim of Descartes, who says uh, anything that sh- can be doubted should be rejected, so uh, it's very strict. I mean, you know, the scientific method is very strict, but it's it's the best one that we have, uh, and it's it's one that I I think uh, I, I'm comfortable with, and it's it's almost like. I think what we have to say, uh, and the way I, I actually feel myself, uh, within my own philosophy is that there, you know, there are wondrous things that, um, that can come to people who seek within themselves that are outside themselves and, you know, by communicating with themselves or universal intelligence, if you will. And uh, has been demonstrated over the years with some of the ma- master composers and, you know, the, some of the ideas, what, what we have today compared to what we have 50 years ago. I mean, it's, uh, if it had been uh, suddenly sprung upon the world 50 years ago, if an iPhone had suddenly, you know, appeared 50 years ago out of nowhere, we'd, we'd think it was at the hand of God. But, um, I think, myself that we don't have to say we don't have to say okay we have to take spirit off the table I think it's just a matter of doing your work uh, and uh, following following the rules of uh, the scientific method and also uh, learning something a little bit about logical fallacies which will steer you clear of some of the pitfalls of scientific inquiry but then, at the same time, recognize that they, uh, this essence, this uh, energy, uh, call spirit, inhabits everything and fuels everything. Uh, that's my own particular worldview. And, uh, and so you don't take it off the table. It's, it's just a given that it's, it's always there. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Well, at least keep it as a possibility, but don't discount it
1: fully. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think it should be discounted. I, I think that a lot of uh, if there is a if there is a person that claims something that is um, that is extraordinary, it's like a psychic phenomena or something like that. Uh, most normal people cannot understand, or they cannot replicate, and so they reject it. And that has happened. A lot, you know, paranormal events and things of that nature, and uh, and so then it's very difficult to prove those things. And so you do have the rise of uh, skeptics like James Randi who will uh, challenge <laughs> yeah. challenge challenge those people, um, and you know they should be challenged. I mean, if somebody is uh, selling a, uh, a, a a product or the you know which is their Snake psychic oil. ability, yeah. I'm not saying it's snake oil, but it, I mean, they, uh, and to, and to that person and any person who uh, is attracted to them, uh, it may be the most beautiful and beneficial relationship that you could have. But, uh, 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 you know, it's, uh, it's very, it's it's an area, the bridge, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to cross. I mean, if, if, if there is a, if there is a a use for the, this uh, th- these insights or intuition, uh, you know, I think we should I think we should recognize it and bring it into our everyday work.
0: Well, I think Aristotle who said it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. But for example, we go yeah. to school. We'd go to school when you were little children, and history books talk about the pyramids, and the first thing they say. It was a tomb, and right. this is how it was built. Blah blah blah. Now let's right. discuss what Egyptologists teach. What is it? What? How do they? How do they cut the stone? How do they move and carry the stones? And their building methods tell us.
1: Well, yes, Egyptologists will tell you that uh, the stones were cut using copper, uh, using wooden hat, wooden mallets uh, and stone pounders, stone chisels. Um, there is evidence of the use of saw 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 work on the on the Giza plateau and in other parts of uh, Egypt, and uh, so they would say that the saw the saw work was done using copper uh, saws with uh, sand, and you know there have been articles published on that, opinions published on that. Uh, I've studied them. I included a. uh, a study of that in in my last book lost technologies of ancient egypt and um but they the the methods don't work and you know the they they they're not willing to accept any any story or any anything that would um uh, put the the uh, that culture uh, uh, the culture that built the, the pyramids in a, in a different time frame with uh, different tools available to them. The, uh, the movement of massive stones is one thing, you know, and so we have these really pathetic attempts to move small blocks, uh, to demonstrate how the great, how the ancient Egyptians, uh, moved massive blocks, you know, like, uh, 500 ton obelisks, uh, a thousand ton statues. Uh, you have, you know, I mean, incredible, uh feats of uh, megalithic moving in in the past not just in Egypt but in other parts of the world if you go to south america if you go to lebanon you have the jupiter temple balbec balbec uh, yes all of these places uh stonehenge in england all of these places that have uh show, demonstrated the ability to move these massive stones whereas we build our our uh, Temples and churches and and houses with very small elements. Uh, those ancient cultures were using huge elements. Um, you know, their stones weighed 200 tons, where our stones will weigh a few pounds, uh, enough for a person to carry, right? So that's a... Uh, the, you know that those seem to be signatures of a civilization that were a lot more, a lot more advanced, or even not necessarily along the same path that we are in terms of. You know, we can't automatically jump to. Well, they had uh, iPads and iPhones back then. Um, we don't know. They could have had a very simple, rudimentary means I've been able to lift very large weights. Uh and if you want an example of that, you go to Florida to and to Coral Castle and yeah, uh, Lee Skullman built uh, Coral Castle and you know, a five foot one, five foot two guy weighs a hundred pounds. And at night. At life, lifting a thirty ton block of stone. Uh, and then twenty-five ton blocks, twenty-three ton blocks. I mean, this guy was doing some very significant work, and uh, he wouldn't allow anybody to watch him. Uh, uh, he moved it. He moved the entire place he, at one point. But he moved it. Yeah, yeah. He moved. Uh, he moved most of his large, large uh, blocks from uh, Florida City to Homestead. Up, up to Homestead. Yeah. And uh, and so you know that that is a story in and of itself. <laughs> I mean, the how how Lee Scowen did his work.
0: What do so. you think about it, Lee Scowen? This is a humble person who came to to America when he was young, and you know, allegedly because of the love he had for a failed love he left behind. He did all that. That was allegedly the inspiration. Where do you think he got? Well, I guess it's the same question about the Egyptians. In this case, where do you think Ed derived that knowledge?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. Um, he was definitely uh, eccentric. Uh, he came came to America from Latvia. He worked in the in the logging industry up in the, the Pacific Northwest, and then traveled down t- through uh, California, I think, and worked at a, uh, a quarry, worked as a quarry man, and then uh, he made his way down to Florida, but he was supposedly very ill. But he always, he, he claimed that um, he ha- he knew the secrets of how, how the Great Pyramids were built. And when you consider all the other um, theories and people who tried to prove that they knew how the pyramids were built, um, he was the only one that was actually able to demonstrate something uh, uh, that shows that, yeah, he, he must have had something. And, uh, and so when you go to his place in Florida, you find you find a, a it's a puzzlement, you know I mean it's like um, how how did he come by that information? Uh, obviously, he had gathered a lot of technical skills along the way. Uh, working in the quarries and working in the logging industry, and um, and he was uh, a student of the universe. He, he he wrote about that, and he also wrote about the nature of electricity and magnetism. He had a different view than uh, what conventional science has for physicists now. He believes that all matter is made up of individual magnets, north or south, and it's these magnets, their movement through matter and through space, is what we uh, what we interpret as uh, electricity and gravity. So, uh, of course, you know, there's some people who say, "Well, that's just gobbledygook." You know, it's just crazy because uh, it it does. It does, uh, go against what, uh, what traditional science will teach us. Can we have,
0: a, go ahead, finish your thought?
1: But it's an interesting question. And, you know, the, uh, he may, he may be right. The conventional theorists may be right. But the, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that as far as, um, individuals in, in our day, in the modern era, who have, Performed a, a a work that is now considered to be a mystery. Um, it does pose it does pose a question uh, that you know if he is correct that he knew how the, the pyramids were built, and by demonstrating that he was able to float these large blocks of stone, which he had. He is it's uh, it's been you know there's a legend about kids who watched him uh, snuck uh, into the stuck to the castle and looked over the wall while he was working and saw him floating a stone in the air. If that if those stories are uh, actually indicate that he did have a different method of relieving granite, uh, gravity then um, it, it's definitely a question worth pursuing. And I know that there are quite a few people in the world today who are studying Lee and to try to determine how how he was able to move those uh, those blocks of stones.
0: And before we take our one and only intermission, let me just read this fact from your book. It okay. says, in preparation for his book on May fifth, 2000, Ice, the Ultimate Disaster... Richard Noon asked a technical director of the Indiana Limestone Institute of America to prepare a time study of what it would take to quarry, quarry, fabricate, and ship enough limestone to duplicate the Great Pyramid. Using the most modern quarrying equipment available for cutting, lifting, and transporting the stone, Booker estimated that the present-day Indiana limestone industry would need to triple its output. They would take the entire industry, which, as I have said, includes 33 quarries, 27 years to fill the order for 131,467,940 feet of stone. Uh, Lisa estimates were based on the assumption the production would proceed without problems. Then we would be faced with the task of putting the limestone blocks in place. Unquote. Very interesting fact, Christopher.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, there you have... uh that's when the where the rubber meets the road so to speak you go to the people who would if you were going to build a pyramid you go to the people who would actually uh, provide the materials for you and see what the lead time would be and uh I, there's another part of my book uh where i went to a a, a manufacturer of granite precision granite surface plates and uh, other metrology equipment out of, made out of granite. And I, I sent them a drawing of a, a granite box in the Serapeum in Egypt uh, and asked for a quote on what it would take to make it. And they responded that they didn't have the equipment to make it as a solid piece like the Egyptians did. They'd have to make it in five pieces uh, and ship it and bolt it together on site. So, you know, the uh, the... Ancient Egyptians were certainly uh, doing something that was extraordinary in in our world today. I mean, it would stretch at the limitations of our technologies to create what they created, and
0: and the question that keeps me always searching for the truth is why the gap. Of technology? Why this gap of information that we're just, we cannot even fathom, even today's, techn- with today's technology. But we have to take our one and only break. The Giza Power Plant and Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. The two books. How can people buy them, Chris?
1: Um, well, they can order them through their bookstore, or it's available on uh, the online bookstores. Uh, depending on what your favorite bookstore is, it's widely available, and it's also uh, there are some libraries that have them in uh, so yeah it's very it's readily available That's, uh, you can, uh, or you can order them from the publisher which is uh, Inner Traditions Baron Company and they're in Vermont so their uh, website is www.innertraditions.com and they'd be happy to help anybody uh, with a purchase.
0: Wonderful. I'm here with my special guest, Christopher Dunn, finally coming to Veritas. When we come back so much more interesting, let's let's really dig deeper into all of this. This is Mel Famburgas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy!